morning, everyone. My name is Chris, and I'm a pastor here at River City. And uh, Brad was supposed to tell you guys this, but I guess I will instead. Um, so two weeks ago, well, actually, no, it was just last week. Sorry. Who knows what day it is? Uh, last week, we were supposed to finish our series in, in Habakkuk. But uh, unfortunately, Brad got sick, allegedly, because that's really when he started gardening. And so he, he forcefully pushed us and made us start our summer series in Ephesians a week early, which Troy uh, walked us through last week, verses 1 through 14 of chapter 1. And, and verses 3 through 14 are, are really one really, really long sentence. And it's a sentence designed uh, to tell us what we have in Christ. And, and our passage this morning is going to tell us how we can have access to all these things. But before we, we get into that, let's talk about uh, infrastructure, everyone's favorite everyone's favorite topic, infrastructure. Okay, so February 2021, which was both last week, a year ago, and a decade ago, all at once. Uh, but if you can remember, February 2021, okay, the, the state of Texas, okay, and, and this is going to sound, um, maybe some of you have been to Texas, maybe some of you spent time in Texas, and you're going to say, Chris, this is so obvious, you sound really ignorant, I apologize, okay? But let, we're going to get into this, all right? So the state of Texas suffered a major power crisis, okay, which came about during three severe winter storms that swept across the United States, okay, and, and these storms, they triggered the worst energy infrastructure failure in Texas state history, leading to shortages of water, food, and heat. More than 4.5 million homes and businesses were left without power, and some for several days. At least 246 people were killed directly or indirectly, with some estimates as high as 700 because of this crisis. State officials, including Governor Greg Abbott, initially blamed the outages on frozen wind turbines and solar panels. However, a subsequent investigation showed that the failure was due to failure to winterize power sources, primarily those of natural gas, which had caused grid failure. Okay, so if you, if you didn't know, okay, this is, this is where my ignorance comes in, okay, if you, if you didn't know, Texas's power grid has long been separate from the two major national grids, okay, and, and they've done this to avoid federal oversight, okay? There are three power grids in the entire United States. There's the U.S., and there's the Eastern Connection, there's the Western Connection, and then there's Texas, okay? There's only three. So this, this disconnection from the rest of the U.S., it, it made it difficult for them during this, this crisis to import electricity in from other states. And the deregulation of this electricity market actually began in the 1990s, which resulted in wholesale competition for electricity prices, but it also cut contingency preparation. So the 2021 crisis drew much attention to the state's lack of preparedness for such storms. And a report from the U.S. Uh, federal regulators 10 years earlier had warned Texas of its potential power plant failures in sufficiently cold conditions. Damages due to the cold wave and winter storms were estimated to be at least $195 billion, likely the most expensive disaster that we'll hear about for some time. And then according to the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, so many different governing bodies, but the power grid was mere seconds or minutes away from complete failure. So fast forward to today, 
I was reading about this. The Texas Tribune recently had an interview with Pat Woods, who's a CEO for one of these uh, wholesale energy providers in Texas. And he actually confirmed that Texas right now could in fact connect itself to the main power grid if it wanted to without additional oversight. And even during certain seasons, they could sell excess energy to other states. By connecting to the main power grid, they could have saved themselves a billion dollars and they could have prevented blackouts for over 200,000 homes. As part of this same investigation, the, the Tribune then interviewed someone from the Texas Public Utility Commission, Rich Parsons, and he said, there are no plans to change the status of the grid at this time. The bottom line is we're focused on the reliability of Texas first. Despite the overwhelming evidence for Texas to connect itself to the rest of the country. It, it doesn't seem like their situation is going to change anytime soon. And at the end of the day, they likely won't ever connect to the rest of the power grids because they don't want to. And it's because they don't want to lose their independence. They don't want to be overseen. So here's, here's where we're going for this. For, for the Christian, there's immeasurable power available to us. Power so strong that it raised someone from the dead, Jesus, and shot him straight to heaven. And that power works on our behalf even right now. But you can't access it unless you're connected to Jesus. And if you want to connect to Jesus, then you have to follow Jesus. And that's going to cost you your independence, but in all the best ways possible. Which brings us to our text this morning, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, halfway through, starting in verse 15 and running through the end of verse 23. And, and here we have a prayer that Paul begins to pray. And, and even though Paul has outlined every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ in verses 3 through 14 of this chapter, Paul still prays for these people. And the tone of this first chapter is just complete joy. And the way Paul writes, he couldn't be more excited to be writing to this group of people in this moment. But it's almost like he can't say another word until he prays for them. And the reason Paul prays for the Ephesians is that even though they know all the blessings and they have power in Christ, we still have to be hooked up to the main power grid. And that is Jesus himself. And as Christians, we have this immense power available to us. All of our lives are filled with ups and downs, and sometimes the downs outweigh the ups. But we have power at our disposal to get through those times. In order to access that power, we have to continually grow in our love for Jesus. And that means understanding all that we have in Jesus. One of the main questions that the book of Ephesians aims to answer is, what does it mean to be in Christ and what does it demand of us? Part of understanding what it means to be in Christ is knowing what is fully ours in Christ. I don't, I don't know if we always fully grasp that as, as a church, because if we did and we truly knew what it meant, then we would spend more time, more energy, and more effort into cultivating our relationships with Jesus. In Colossians 3.11, Paul said, Christ is all and in all. Meaning this one truth by itself confirms Jesus' utter sufficiency to be the answer for every issue in life of the believer. He is all that is necessary for salvation and living out our lives. Sometimes I think we're not ready or willing 
to admit that we have a shallow understanding of Jesus and all of the things that we have in him. And because of this shallowness, we don't even know all of the resources that we have at our disposal. So finally, let's read these verses together, 15 through 23. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Let's pray real quick. God, uh, help us to, to, to lock in, to focus right now on your word. I pray that this word is encouraging and refreshing to our hearts and stirs our affections for Jesus. Amen. Okay, verse 15. In, in thanking God for their faith in Jesus, Paul is, of course, praising God for their saving faith. But at the same time, Paul is also thanking God for their practical faith. So the Ephesian church not only rested its salvation on Christ, but their everyday life. It's interesting in how verse 15, he says that the Ephesians had love for all the saints. And what's interesting about this is if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we actually don't have love for all the saints. And sometimes our surface level Christianity makes it easier for us to criticize and point out ways in which people fall short. But it doesn't appear to be that way for this church. I think an easy question to ask yourself is, are you excited about the faith and love of others? Or do you celebrate the spiritual growth in others? And what's even maybe more revealing is, Do we praise God when this is happening in places that we are not present? These questions aren't to shame us or to propel us into feeling something we don't. But Paul's attitude calls us upward. We have to see that true thankfulness in our hearts for others if we're to truly pray for them. And as we can see from Paul's example, his his celebrating heart moves from just all-out praise in the first part of this chapter to powerful petition, beginning in verse 17. How should we pray for those we love? We'll see in a second. Verse 17, we see that Paul begins a prayer for this church. And why does he pray for them, though? What is it? Is it something more? Is he praying for some additional gift? Is he praying for some additional resource, some additional provision? Not at all. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious father would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In other words, I pray that God would give you an attitude that would allow you to comprehend all that you have in Christ. 
That's what he's saying. I want God the Father to show you that you have Christ at your disposal. I want you to have a disposition, a frame of mind, one that is connected to the divine wisdom and divine revelation so that it yields to you all the knowledge of what is in Christ and that you would really comprehend all that is there. If you have your Bible open, we're going to quickly look at it. It's not going to be on the screen. We're going to go back to verse 3. And, and Paul wants us to know all the more the fullness of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places being ours. And he wants us to know that all the more that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world was laid and that we would be holy and blameless in his sight. He wants us to know all the more in verse 5 that we are adopted sons and daughters and not servants or slaves, but we've brought, been brought into the family of God as full heirs. He wants us to know all the more in verse 7 and 8 the fullness of what it means to have redemption and the forgiveness of God lavished upon us. And, and in verse nine, he wants us to know the fullness of the mystery of God's will that has been made known to us. And all the more in verse 10, the hope of the future. And in verse 11, that we have an inheritance as sons and daughters of God. He wants us to know these things that, so that in verse 13, you can see that you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is a guarantee. The people in Ephesus, they know this though. Paul knows they know this, but he wants them to know more of it. If, if we created a, a, a sort of a spectrum and we went back over that list in verses 3 through 11, some of you might think, well, uh, I, I'm saved and I think I maybe get a, a blessing or two here or there. Or, or you might be on the other side and, you, and you're saying God is in heaven and he's just pouring out blessing upon blessing upon my life. Well, to both of those people, Paul says, great, there's more for you. There's more knowledge of these things for you to have. So Paul earnestly prays in verse 17 that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would be given to them. And through the spirit of wisdom and revelation, they would know Christ more. Knowing Christ is one of the New Testament's ways of describing faith. And what does it mean to truly know Christ? It's not just about knowing facts, but rather it's about absorbing what is true and having it inform your heart. You see, growth in Christ is both growing in knowledge and experiential. Here's what happens sometimes is sometimes we, we belittle experiences when it comes to feeling the forgiveness of Jesus and the love of Jesus. We just want to go, no, we want to believe by faith regardless of what we feel. We believe by faith. Yes and amen. Okay, which is true. We want to be able to do that, but don't take away the experience of what it feels to be fully forgiven and loved by God. Verse 18, then the text goes on to explain just exactly how we're going to know Christ more. Paul prays for the eyes of our hearts. You see, eyes are expressive. And I didn't realize how expressive they were until I had a daughter who looks a lot like me. And every time she looks at someone with her little furrowed face, they go, you look at me just like your dad does. I don't know what that means. I don't know how to take that. Okay. We can often tell a lot about someone when we look them in the eyes. The eyes are instruments of perception enabling us to see. The eyes of the heart then are also instruments of the heart's perception. And if you listen to truth, your heart is receiving and perceiving. So you're absorbing reality at the innermost level of your being. And what does Paul want us to see? He has three things that he wants us to see. And the first is that he wants us to see his hope. 
that our hearts be enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Notice how it doesn't say muster hope. It's not something that you need to come up with yourself. It's, it's the hope to which he has called you so that we are able to be a people who are marked by hope. Christians are a people of hope and we are optimistic in God. If you look across all of Paul's letters, one of the things that he is constantly asking for the saints to grow in is hope. And yes, the hope of our salvation, but also that we grow in hope that we're saved, that God has rescued you from your sins. He wants you to grow in righteousness. And we believe that righteousness is both our right standing before God, but also that God has rescued you from your sins and that God will lead us out over time through progressive sanctification to greater places of freedom. So don't lose hope. If you feel stuck right now, he wants you to grow in hope, in a resurrection, in an incorruptible body. Our bodies both physically and because of sin can make us feel so soul-stealingly exhausted sometimes. And Paul wants us to hear today, right now, that you got a resurrected body coming. And that's not going to break down. That's not going to fall apart. There's not going to be any pain and you're not going to be overwhelmed at any moment. In that new heavenly body, he wants you to grow in the hope of eternal life. And eternal life starts right now. See, eternal life's not a reference to what happens when we die, but eternal life is a reference to what happens when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of you. And that you and I right now, we are living out eternal life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, Paul wants us to know about the riches or what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I not only want you to know about the inheritance, but I want you to know, I want you to really know about how rich an inheritance it is. I want you to know what's in it for you. I want you to know the specific things. I want you to know what belongs to Christ, but is being shared with you. The riches of this thing. It's, its magnitude is beyond our ability to conceive. And no matter how deeply you dive into the resources available in Christ, you never, ever hit rock bottom. That gives us security. That gives us confidence. That gives hope and joy and calls us to love Christ. Here we are, un undeserving people. I mean, truly undeserving people who constantly fall short, stumbling and failing at every turn. When we have been made due to nothing of our own, part of a great plan by a loving, gracious God. This high calling, this holy calling, this heavenly calling we don't deserve and inherit in its richness is beyond our imagination. So whatever we may suffer in this life, whatever difficulties and hardships, what does it matter? I continually am amazed at how upset I get about trivial stuff. It boggles my mind. You and I are so immensely rich and I get caught up in the dumbest things. My job is not going to fulfill me. The next hobby isn't going to fulfill me. More money isn't going to fulfill me. And sweet Avery is not going to fulfill me. Whatever might fail us on earth or in the pursuit of things that are less than God will never fail you in a relationship to Christ. So pursue him. And finally, Paul wants us to understand of the three things 
not only the greatness of his riches, but the greatness of his power. Look at verse 19. He wants the eyes of our hearts to be open so that we may know what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards those who believe. There is so much power available to us that Paul is, he's literally grasping for the right words to get us to comprehend this power. It's literally a powerful verse. He says that God's power is so strong that we can't even measure it. And the only way we can trust in that power is because it's according to his mighty strength. In other other words, trust God's power because he is that strong. So as Christians, we, we can put our hope in God's power. We don't have to go around saying, well, I don't know if I'm adequate. I don't know if I can make it through this tough time. I don't know if I can have victory over this temptation. I don't know if I can be effective in ministry. I don't know if I can be useful to the Lord. I I mean, I don't even know if I can witness and have people really believe it. I don't know if I can call on God in the midst of my trials and know that he's going to answer. 2 Corinthians 4.16, I'm going to read it for us. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. So while our outer selves are wasting away, the inner person is being renewed every day in power. Power to change our lives, power to conquer sin, power to overcome temptation, power to do God's will, power to serve, power to speak, power to work, power so great that it exceeds anything we can ask or think. And just to illustrate this level of power, verse 20, he goes on to say, it's the power that brought about that was brought about in Christ when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This power is resurrection and ascension power. It's the same power that lifted Christ out of the grave and took him to heaven. That's totally way beyond our understanding or any other human source. Christ went into the grave and he popped out like popcorn on the other side. Sin could not hold him. Death could not hold him. Hell could not hold him. Satan could not hold him. The demons could not hold him. And he ascended to the right hand of the father. And he sits there now interceding for us. That very same power, Paul says, that took Jesus through the grave and out the other side and to the throne of God is working on your behalf at this very moment. And not just at the point of our death and resurrection or our ascension into heaven. Not just at that point, but even now we have that power. That surpassingly great power toward us who believe. It works operatively in our lives even now. But we don't use it. We don't tap into it. We live in the shallows and we never get to the depths, chasing around for all the easy formulas and never pursuing the deep knowledge of Jesus that comes through time spent with him. And then there's this last element that Paul wants us to understand, and that's the greatness of his person. Just, just to cap it all off, he says in verse 21 that Christ as a, as a person is far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but the age to come. 
and he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. The last part of this prayer by Paul is that people would just understand how great Christ is. As Christians, we, we, have, we have nothing to fear. There, there isn't any ruler, authority, or power that's above Jesus. Therefore, whatever happens to you in this life, it cannot defeat you. His power on your behalf can never be outweighed by any force. Nothing can hinder Christ because no one surpasses him or is even equal to him in power. Jesus is not just above. He is far above every ruler and authority. And so Paul tells us so that we don't think that maybe angels or, or even Satan could have a possible hold on him. No one is equal with him in power. Sometimes, and I'm guilty of this myself, is, is, is we're, tend, we, we're tempted to think that, that pastors or, or really spiritual people have a direct line to God. I mean, Speaking of myself, I certainly can't come to God and, and ask him for anything. I must need a pastor or, or at least someone more spiritual than me, someone with a direct line to God. But the reality is they don't have a greater direct line to God. Christ, who is their savior, who is my savior and your savior too. And there isn't a secret direct line that goes right to God that you can't access yourself. There is nothing on this earth that can offer you the resources that Christ can. And you might be saying to yourself, then what's a pastor for? What's a church for then? It's all here to direct you to Jesus. That's why I'm here. That's why you're here. That's why we have city groups and why we hang out with each other. Not to call you to us, but to call you to Jesus, to direct you to him. The greatest lesson that we can teach is that you're not going to find in us the resource, but you're going to find it in him. And we have no reason not to go to him. No reason not to cast every single one of our cares on him. If you would just understand the greatness of his plan and the greatness of his power and the greatness of his person, you certainly would go there too. And then this final section, verse 23, is the ultimate significance which describes us as the church, which is Christ's body. And from this, we observe two things. First of all, we, you and I, are the body which complements the head. This means there's this, this subtle, but maybe not so subtle union between Christ and us. And we should think about our union with Christ in terms of an actual body. The, the body is not just some random collection of loose parts, but we are attached together, each serving in unique ways. And secondly, we are the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. What does this mean? The church is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The church is that which fills up Christ who fills the universe in every way. How, how can this be though? God is totally without need and independent of anything. But part of what Paul is praying for here is that we would understand that the church is the fullness. In other words, it is a complement of that which fills up Christ who fills the universe. Let's, 
Let's go a little deeper. What, what is it exactly? What are we getting at here, though? How can Jesus, who created the universe and its head and who fills it in every way, be filled by the church? We've got to keep thinking about this metaphor between the head and the body. Uh, a head is incomplete without the body. If you saw a body without a head or even the other way around, you, you probably would be pretty freaked out. But the body and head are one in both a, phys- a physical and mystical sense. We as the body of Christ are part of which fills Christ. And, and maybe another way to put it is a, a groom without his bride or a shepherd without his sheep. So the head is not complete without the body. The church is a complement to Christ. Jesus has this inexplicable, unfathomable love for us that he sees himself as incomplete without us. Again, we don't add anything to Christ or God, but what an honor to have bestowed on us as the church. Even in eternity, we will never get to the bottom of this. So as we end our time this morning, you have to realize that that Jesus understands and he cares and he sees himself as incomplete without us. And as we run our eyes back up this text, we begin to understand why Paul prayed that the eyes of our hearts be open so that we might see the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That power which brought Jesus' resurrection, ascension, and exaltation, displaying his lordship, seeing this, we must understand that because we are his body, because he loves us so much that he considers himself incomplete without us, that power is operable on our behalf right now. And there's only one thing that's necessary to believe. There's only one thing that's necessary, and that is to believe. And are we hooked up to the power or not? But in order to be hooked up to this power, we must place our full trust in Christ and believe that he holds the keys to everything we could ever want or need. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for giving us the time and just to think about Jesus. Christ is all and in all. And yet sometimes we forget this. Give us understanding of Christ so that we we may pursue knowledge of Christ that is both informative and experiential so that we may cultivate a loving relationship with Jesus that bears fruit of which is living in confidence and strength and security and joy and peace and hope. We confess Christ is everything. He is all we need. Amen.